I'm Alka Kurian, host of South Asian Films and Books. I'm also a faculty at the University of Washington Bothell, teaching film, literature, gender and human rights. In South Asian Films and Books, I'm going to look at how South Asian writers and filmmakers explore some of the major issues and help us make sense of the world that we inhabit. From politics to culture, each episode looks at a topic that impacts and shapes the lives of people living in South Asia and its diasporas. This is South Asian Films and Books, an original podcast broadcast from Seattle. Subscribe to South Asian Films and Books as soon as possible so you don't miss a single episode. My guest today is the award-winning British-Pakistani novelist, writer and brand ambassador Mohsin Hamid. Born in Pakistan and educated in the United States, Mohsin divides his time between Lahore, New York and London. He's the author of 6 novels and two of his novels, The Reluctant Fundamentalist and Exit West, have been shortlisted for the Booker Prize. I'm talking to him today about his latest novel, The Last White Man. Set in an unspecified city and country, this magic realist novel is about a white man Anders who one morning wakes up to find himself changed to a darker skin color and a different unfamiliar appearance. More people in the city begin to experience the same changes, a transformation that changes certainties around the meaning of race, the privilege that comes with whiteness, what it means to lose this privilege, and the meaning of love, loss and belonging. Mohsin joins me from New York. Welcome to the show. Thank you. The novel's intriguing plot is evocative of Kafka's metamorphosis. Instead of turning into a bug, the central character's skin color changes. He's terrified and enraged at the loss of his whiteness, which throws him in a murderous and suicidal fit. He's fearful of how others will react to it. He goes to great lengths hiding his skin. He fears being recognized, rejected or being killed. Talk a little bit about this. So Anders lives in an unnamed city in an unnamed country. and he's a young man and one morning he wakes up and his skin is dark and the night before when he went to bed his skin was light and he has somehow changed and he at first doesn't believe this has happened surely he hasn't changed but he goes to the bathroom and he looks at himself in the mirror and he discovers that in fact he has changed and his initial reactions are you know horror and shock and anger he's sort of furious in a unexpected way and and he crawls back into bed and and hopes that you know it'll just undo itself and and it'll go away but it doesn't go away and after a while of staying in his apartment and not going out and not visiting anyone he's forced to go out and get, get basic supplies and he get called in sick to work but he has to go out now and he goes out and he wears a hoodie and he covers his skin and he you know tries to in a sense hide himself as he goes outside and he experiences something very strange he feels that people are looking at him he feels vaguely menaced and he's not sure if is actually being menaced or if he just is imagining that he's being menaced and he goes to work and he sees his friends and he's trying to communicate to people that he's still the same person that this change is only skin deep that he's still really the same anders but what happens is that by trying to act like himself and trying to act casual and trying to act unconcerned and trying to act natural he comes across as not natural not unconcerned you know not like himself and he discovers that trying to be like yourself and to be normal is the least normal thing that one can do people become sort of put off by how he's acting and so what began as a sort of skin deep change where he's the same person but he's just in a sense changed appearance starts to change to something more profound where he realizes he's not the same person people aren't relating to him in the same way he doesn't feel the same things and he starts to become in a sense a different person and that's how the novel really begins 
the narrative, in fact, equates the loss of whiteness with a disease or a loss of ability where he experiences terrible white envy, but he's very aware that he's entered into an unequal power dynamics where he experiences the white gaze upon himself as a dark person. He feels the need to prepare himself for an imminent attack by white militia like black people who forever have lived with the threat of being killed. And you evoke a powerful sense of dislocation that comes with a sense of looked atness, a kind of feminization of the characters who are placed under the gaze. It's interesting that you call it sort of feminization. I mean, I know what you mean there. It's, it, in a sense, Anders goes from being somebody who, who looks, who has a gaze, you know, who gazes upon others, to being someone who feels that he's looked at, who's being gazed upon. And I think that's what you mean by, in a sense, the feminization of, of perspective. He experiences quite a profound alteration in his place in society, his sense of self, his relationship to his own father. Because the novel, in a sense, is a novel of, of three love stories. It's a novel that has one love story at its heart, which is uh, the relationship between Anders and Una, two young people who are sort of having kind of a casual relationship in this small town. Then Anders changes, and the relationship begins to become much less casual. It acquires a certain intensity. And also the relationship between Anders and his father, and Una and her mother. Una's mother is someone who, in a sense, has come to believe in all sorts of conspiracy theories about the replacement of white people, about plots against white people. And for her, this phenomenon, because Anders is not the only one who changes, others begin to change, and soon almost everybody starts to change, becomes darker. Una's mother views this as, in a sense, proving what she has long believed, that there is some kind of plot, there is a kind of erasure underway. And Una, who is partly horrified by her mother's reactions, but also very close to and protective of her mother, is trying to navigate this sense of, of change with her mother. And Anders is very close to his father in a sense, but they're somewhat estranged. But Anders' father is, is profoundly unwell. He's dying. And the relationship between Anders and his father explores this, where Anders' father is both deeply upset and saddened, and he thinks it's a tragic thing that's happened to his son. He always thought his son looked a bit like his son's mother, which is to say Anders' father's wife. And Anders' father's wife has passed away, and so Anders was a connection to his own wife for Anders' father. And his father feels that he's lost that. But he also feels he has to pass something on to his son, that he has to convey something of their culture, of who he is, of what it is to be from their people to his son. And so the relationship between Anders and his father, which is the third love story, alongside Anders and Una, Una and her mother, kind of intergenerational love story, explores this, the relationship between two generations as the younger generation changes and the older generation passes away. Do you think the change in his skin color humanizes Anders? He notices, for example, the brown cleaning man whom, until the change happened, was invisible to him. But becoming dark himself, he becomes interested in finding out more about the cleaning man. So do you think becoming dark himself becomes an enabler of his humanity and where he begins to understand that at one's core, that deep down, we're all the same. Well, I think if by one's humanity, you mean the idea of being able to see other people as human beings, if humanity is an ability to see the human in others, certainly that expands for Anders. And in a sense, the journey begins for Anders as a kind of trap. He finds himself trapped in a new identity. He also experiences a kind of loss, a loss of freedom or a loss of identification or a loss of what he thought he was. 
But as the novel progresses, he begins to have certain kinds of opportunity, as you just mentioned, to realize that he doesn't know the full name of the cleaning guy in his gym where he works, who he sees every day. To realize that there are other people who are looking at him differently that he hadn't looked at with much consideration. To realize a certain bond with his own father, with Una's mother, with Una, with the people around them. In a sense, his journey through racial categories is a journey of migration. And what migrants experience when they migrate is multiple perspectives. The perspective you grew up with and the perspective that comes to be around you in the place that you've moved to. And so Anders is, in a sense, a kind of migrant. And if you imagine that our sense of depth perception comes from, in our vision, comes from having two eyes. You know, if we have two eyes, we can see depth more clearly than if we use one eye. Similar thing, I think, happens to people who cross between cultural domains, whether that's because they migrated from one country to another, uh, whether because they have moved from one social class to another, somebody whose family never had anybody going to college, going to college for the first time, whether it's because they've moved through age or, or gender categories, somebody who was young and is now old and can look at the world both as somebody who remembers what it was to be young, but also somebody who now sees the world as somebody who's older. All of these things, in a sense, are kinds of migration, and all of them contain within them the potential, if one takes it, of developing more than one perspective. And that does, in a sense, open up an opportunity for a more human gaze. And in that sense, yes, Anders does develop a more human gaze as the novel progresses. I'd like to talk a little bit more about Una's mother. Clearly, she's inherently racist, a mouthpiece of the so-called great replacement theory. For example, she's always checking the news uh, via social media. She's fearful of this impending war and destruction and a resulting desperation to be prepared to stock up, etc., which in a way becomes a wish-fulfilling prophecy. Whereas Una has a more positive reaction to her own change, she stops her mother from listening to the news. And even when Una's mother changes, she dreams that her grandchildren at least be white. Before she changes, she has this violent and visceral reaction to the idea of miscegenation, like other people do in the novel too, you know, when she encounters Anders with her daughter at night. But I'd like to extend this interpretation to think more about Una's mother's vulnerability. Why is it that as an older person, Una's mother becomes hostage to misinformation or disinformation? a manufactured sense of persecution at the hands of the other, the other who'd bring white people down in the racial hierarchy, as whiteness is all that Una's mother has had. On the one hand, she does that to not assume responsibility for her racism, but then embrace of this ideology of white supremacy gives her something to do. And Una recognizes the terror in her mother's eyes if she lets go of this belief, the hollowness that would follow if she didn't have anything to believe in. So in a way, this is something that many of us have observed even within the Desi diaspora. Many of my colleagues talk about their absolute horror at their parents' bigotedness. So talk to me a little bit about the difference experience that people have when they are face-to-face -face with this change and why it is a generational difference. I think that um, the novel is very much a novel of loss. What is it to lose things? Anders' father's case, in a sense, he's losing his life. In Una's mother's case, she's lost her husband, she's lost her son. Now she's losing what she imagines to be her people. Anders has lost a mother. He's lost, in a sense, his identification with a group of people he thought he belonged to. Una, too, has lost her brother. She's lost her father. 
So all these characters are grappling with different kinds of losses. And I think in human life, of course, human life is a story of loss. You know, during the course of our lifetimes, we lose everything. And throughout human history, we've had all sorts of different inventions, different um, cultural techniques that we have developed as a species to cope with this loss, an awareness that we will lose everything, that, that we do lose everything. And so a huge part of human history has been narratives and stories and worldviews, whether it be religious narratives and stories or folk stories or other cultural ways of grappling with loss. But increasingly in the contemporary world, we are losing those things. We move from place to place and as we are beamed in the kind of global culture, folk stories and traditional narratives are receding as religion in so many places is reconfiguring as a system of kind of in-out group dynamics. It is less often for many people playing that role of a mechanism that helps them deal with loss, the fetishization of the new, of the future, and an incessant need to not think about loss, to buy things. What the market tells us is that, that we are the all-important actor, that, that self-interest is what matters, that we should buy things in our self-interest. But the problem is, of course, that doesn't help us deal with the idea that the self one day ceases to exist and we cannot buy our way out of that predicament. So we're trapped, whether it's in a current contemporary capitalist market economy or whether it's in the decline of our religious belief systems or whether it is in the attenuation of our traditional folk and cultural modes, um, family, people all over are being left much less equipped to deal with and accept and confront and transcend the essential nature of loss in human life. And this is happening alongside technological advancement that means that things are changing more and more rapidly. And that's making us more and more anxious. And then we live in a media culture where there's a war for our attention to monetize and capture our attention. And like every organism, we disproportionately pay attention to threats. If we're walking to the forest and we don't see a strawberry, we'll live to find another strawberry. But if we're walking to the forest and we don't notice that flash of orange that is actually a tiger behind the trees, we'll be dead and we won't live anymore. So every flash of orange generates in us a much stronger response. And in the battle for our attention, what we are being inundated with is threats, flashes of orange in the tree. So all over the world, we are being bombarded through these screens that we carry with us and on our walls and on our desks and tables, information of threat. And so the novel, I guess, is set against this backdrop, a world where dealing with loss becomes something that we are much less well-equipped to do and where a feeling of threat has risen to perhaps unprecedented proportions because it's not uh, the acute threat of the past that somebody's invading your country or, or you have contracted an illness, but rather it's a kind of chronic threat that never goes away. You always are under threat. It can never be escaped from. And so in that dynamics, what begins to happen, of course, is anxiety and nostalgia. And particularly among those who are older, such as Una's mother, that nostalgia becomes very strong, this desire to go back to the past when things were better. And I think that that nostalgia fuels a kind of nostalgic politics that we see all over the world, whether that was sort of Osama bin Laden's appeal to a glory day of Islam or Donald Trump's appeal to making America great again, or Modi's appeal to Hinduism that was virile before the Muslims and Europeans and other invaders arrived in India. 
or Erdogan's Turkishness, or Xi's Chinese-ness, or Putin's Russian-ness, or Britain before the European Union, Verte and Bolsonaro. I mean, this is such a almost universal phenomenon that we're seeing in culture after culture and country after country, which are so different from each other, these countries, that it's something in our cultural moment. And so I think Una's mother's grappling with this crisis and a generation's grappling, an older generation in particular, which feels unmoored, is something the novel really tries to get into and, and explore largely through that character. I want to talk a little bit about the significance of the change in skin color. And all the characters at various stages in their lives uh, and various moments in the narrative, the change in skin color is sudden. It's not gradual. It's not as, for example, as a result of sun exposure. So it's a fascinating device about this shift in perspective, and which is actually not alien to me. As a brown woman, I know the feeling of suddenly becoming a woman of color. I was never conscious of my skin color in India other than you know, the reality of colorism, the incipient reality of colorism or, or classism, which is in so many ways part of colorism. But I became aware of becoming a woman of color suddenly, overnight, instantly on crossing the border into the West. It changed me and my understanding of myself. And as you say in the novel, that learning about one's brownness is uh, like learning a new language, losing your sense of humor, becoming invisible or becoming hyper-visible as a result of one's skin color that suddenly becomes representative of a potent symbol. Do you want to talk a little bit about this? Yes, it is very interesting how it can happen suddenly because what one, I think, realizes is that one changes not because one has changed. You didn't change when you stepped off that airplane. One changes because how one is seen can change and it can change overnight. So in my own life, I think one of the moments or incidents that perhaps gave birth two decades later to this novel was my recollection of what happened around the time of 9-11, the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. Now, I had lived for many years in the U.S. and gone to these elite universities and had a high-paying job in New York City. And of course, I was a brown man with a Muslim-sounding name. But I would say my experiences of, of racism would not have been things that I would rate as among the more significant experiences of my life. By and large, in those days, I had the feeling that uh, America had a fairly binary racial system with white and black being the two binaries. And if you were brown and uh, you, you spoke in a certain way and you had a certain kind of job, you had a certain kind of income and you lived in a certain kind of place, Manhattan in the year 2000 or 2001, you got to partake of many of the advantages in a sense of whiteness. If one assumes that, you know, whiteness is a way of saying just being a human being, one felt in those days quite a bit like one was just a human being. That's what I felt like. But then suddenly the terrorist attacks of 9-11 take place. And I found that at the airport, I'd be pulled aside, arriving at immigration. I'd be put in a separate room and questioned for many hours. People would get up on the bus or the subway and change seats. And people would look at me with suspicion. And I hadn't changed. I was the same person as the week before, the month before, but I was being looked at differently. And it, my initial response was I wanted things to sort of go back to normal, to go back to how they were before. I, I felt a profound sense of loss. But as time went by, I began to wonder, why do I want things to go back to what they were before? And what have I lost? And in a sense, what I had lost was a kind of partial whiteness. Not that I had been white before, but, but that I'd been allowed to sort of 
go about my life without too much constraint. And now I was encountering what it was to not have that. And I realized that to want to go back to that situation also represented wanting to go back to a time of sort of greater ignorance and complicity on my own part in this system. That if it was possible to lose this thing and suddenly be regarded in this different way, and if that was the nature of this racial system that I inhabited, why should I want to go back to <laughs> participating in it and thinking, you know, fine, as long as nobody you know, notices me, the system is fine. Maybe it's better to not want to go back, and maybe it's better to open one's eyes, and maybe it's better to try to be a little bit less complicit in the system. And so I think that notion, one's category, one's the type of person that one is, can change not because you've changed, but because others are looking at you differently, really stayed with me. And I think it's something that many people are experiencing in different ways around the world. As social dynamics change, as generational attitudes change, many people are experiencing being looked at differently the group they belong to meaning something different than what it did a year ago or a decade ago or a generation ago. And so the novel really tries to explore that notion that, in fact, we can be changed by how others look at us and that inevitably we do change as others look at us differently and how this is part of what we see in so many societies around the world at this time. I was fascinated by your observations about death. The novel, as you said, is a profound meditation on the meaning of loss, but more particularly death, you know, loss in the shape of death. For example, Ona and Anders understand death, as the writer Guy Gunaratne puts it, as life's inevitable and unavoidable change or death as transcendence. But in other characters, death or the fear of death represents uh, for example, in Una's brother's case, a trapdoor. Una's brother is willingly uh, moving towards this trapdoor because he's been let down by the world. And Anders, for example, he clings on to life despite knowing that the violence all around him is intended to break him down and he begins to feel suicidal. But in spite of that, he wants to cling on to life. There is a moment in his life when he wonders if he too would have joined the militia and which kind of made me think about Anders's morality. And his father's relationship with death is also very interesting. He insists on giving himself a dignified death because he sees it as fatherly duty. So Anders's father wants to give his son something. And what he wants to give his son is the notion that none of us can avoid death. We must face it. And that it is possible to face it with a certain degree of dignity, to look one's fear in the eyes and to, in a sense, die well. And to die well for oneself, but also to die well for one's children and for those who are watching you. Because, in a sense, it's all he can offer his son now as a father. He's at the end of his life. He's weak. He's desperately ill. And he can hope to relieve a little bit of the fear and anxiety his own son feels by trying to muster a certain dignity in the face of his own mortality. And I think this is very, in a sense, important because all around the world, we are being told how there are threats that we face, threats to our way of life, threats to our people, threats to our culture. But, you know, we are being terrified. We're being told that these people are to get us. These changes are happening. And of course, there are threats. You know, I mean, climate change is a real thing. You know, racism and religious and ethnic hatred are real things. But the attempt to take our fear 
and turn it into a political weapon that is used against other people is unfortunately proving very successful in many different places. A kind of reactionary, nostalgic, weaponized fear of the other. And so what the novel explores is among the responses to that fear are, of course, a change in our perspective, opening our eyes, expanding empathy, migrating through, in Anders's case, color, but also through age and time from one place to another. But also very significantly, something that isn't talked about very much at the moment, courage, the need to be brave in the face of these difficulties, which is not to simply accept them, to say, well, climate is going to be devastated. Let's just be brave and say, fine. It's not a kind of courage of utter resignation, but nonetheless, an attempt to master one's fear, to ask if you are an Indian, are the Pakistanis really out to get us? If you're Pakistani, the same question about Indians, that have I been led to be afraid of this person next to me, across from me? And to what extent is my fear real? And to what extent is my fear, you know, something I am creating? And to the extent it's something I'm creating, to what extent can I muster the courage to be resistant to creating it? How can I be brave enough to recognize somebody else's humanity when every attempt is being made to dehumanize this person, to make me afraid of them, to make me treat them like something else? And so novel tries to get into and explore that idea, a sort of an old-fashioned idea that one of the responses to the tragedy of the human condition, because it is, in a sense, tragic, to find beauty and potential and optimism and hope in the face of tragedy has to be courage. And that, in a sense, is what Anders' father is trying to pass on. It's what Una is looking for and Anders is looking for. And Una's mother, in her own way, is trying to find And the novel really takes that, I guess, that search, the search for courage in the face of this world of anxiety, very seriously. I feel that most of the characters in your novels contend with the body. For example, in The Reluctant Fundamentalist, you show how the brown body in the post 9-11 period, how this brown body is messed with, interfered with by the police, the airport security, the lover, etc. In Exit West, you show the trauma albeit quick and short, the trauma of bodies going through the mysterious doors, like going through a birth canal. In The Last White Man, the body itself changes from being white to brown. I wonder whether the post-colonial writer in you is writing back to the empire by taking away from white people the power that resides in their whiteness. I think that I imagine novels in a slightly strange way. And I think it's worth stopping and just considering how bizarre a novel is. So when you watch a television show or a film, you are seeing something that often looks like the world. You know, trees look like trees and people look like people. Cars look like cars and they sound like cars and sound like people. And of course, it is a, an artificially created experience, but it's one that's experienced much more like the world than the other mass-reproduced mode of storytelling, which is printed fiction, which is books. Books look nothing like the world. A book is a piece of wood which has inks scattered on it according to some design, in a sense, imagined by the writer. And the reader then takes this piece of wood and looks at this spackling of ink and generates an experience. 
the notion that the reader is creating a hallucination, is hallucinating while looking at this wood and ink by themselves for hours, is one of the strangest things that human beings ever do. It's so odd to be sitting there staring at this object with this weird patterns on it and having profound experiences of people and smells and places and emotions and memories and touch. And the reader is generating a huge part of that experience. Readers imagine that they're just reading a book that has been handed to them by a writer that the writer has made. But that's not the case. The writer makes a kind of series of prompts that the reader then uses to imagine into existence what the reader calls a novel. You know, reading a novel is much more like getting with your best friend as a child and saying, you know, let's play at being pirates or princesses or astronauts or whatever. It's two people coming together to play a game of make-believe that involves both of their imaginations, that can only work with both of their imaginations at play. And so when we read a novel, there's a real question as to who is actually reading that book. What is reading? Is it the reader? It's not just the reader. The writer has somehow managed to also be part of it. But it can't also just be the writer. The writer isn't there. That piece of wood with ink on it isn't actually the experience. There's an enormously fertile and hybrid condition that occurs when we read books. Also when we write them, but when we read books. And in that fertile condition, things are blurred. And so for myself, what I find very interesting is to try to explore using that blurred hybrid condition to allow readers to imagine experiences that they wish to imagine into existence, to play make-believe with somebody else into a domain where you can have a particular kind of very unusual imaginative experience. And when we talk about things like race and identity, what's quite interesting and I think almost unique about the experience of reading a book is that we get to experience it in solitude. In other words, we're having an imaginative, creative experience about race, about identity, but nobody else can see us having it. Nobody else knows what's happening in our minds. We're not even sitting in a theater with other people. We're sort of by ourselves reading this book, having an internal experience. And it's one of the very rare times in our lives where we can approach these ideas without an aspect that is fundamentally performative. In other words, so much of our lives we spend in a performative relationship to race and ethnicity and these sorts of questions, to acting in a way that we think is the right way to act, that will be acceptable to the person across from us or acceptable to our image of ourselves or offensive to that person if that's what we choose to perform. But when we're by ourselves, there's no one else to perform for. We can sort of have an imaginative experience of identity or of race that doesn't require or even really suggest a need to perform itself. We can sort of see, how does this make us feel? Do I like these characters? Do I not like these characters? Is this like me? Is it not like me? Do I think this is or isn't? And I think that is incredibly useful. It's very useful to be able to encounter an imaginative experience in these domains without anyone else watching, able to have it in a non-performative sense with ourselves, because it gives us the freedom to possibly change to say, huh, this made me feel a little bit differently. This made me feel something else. This made me question. This made me reconsider. And that's where I think is really so much of the fertility of written fiction is that it enables an imaginative experience on the part of the reader that is personal to the reader that no one else can see 
that has the potential to allow the reader to imagine the world around them in a different way. I'd like to talk a little bit about your style of writing. It's been compared with Jose Saramago's style of writing, where he writes paragraph long sentences. So, you know, each of my books has a kind of form appropriate for that book, and they have different forms. In The Rotten Fundamentalist, the form was a sort of dramatic monologue where one character meets another character and it's kind of conversation, but we only hear half of that conversation, only hear one character speaking. And that was done in a way formally because I thought that so much of the conversation in that post 9-11 moment, post 9-11 decade, was a series of one-sided conversations where you would hear your group or your people talking about the situation and intentionally sort of drown out anybody else's perspective. And so that destabilized and very uncomfortable one-sided conversation became a way to force the reader, in a sense, to generate the other half of a conversation and to see how that made them feel and how they judge things. This novel, The Last White Man, is a novel where all of my novels have a kind of rupture in reality. In this case, sometimes it's, it's to do with the setting or to do with time or to do with perspective. In this novel, it's to do with people turning dark. And then I thought I wanted to, in a sense, have a form that lent itself to the potential for perspective changing, as Anders's perspective would change. These long sentences that would sort of go on, and Anders would think one thing, and then he would think about that thing and say, well, maybe it's not quite that, maybe it's this, and then, well, maybe it's this. And these sentences that would go from Anders' perspective into Una's perspective, back into Anders' perspective, into Anders' father's perspective, always moving. And that would also establish certain kinds of rhythms and cadences. Because rhythms and cadences and, and the musicality that they contain allow us to transmit information in a different way, which is something that every great speaker has been aware of. If you think of the potency of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, it's only partly the message that he's conveying in terms of that we should not be judged by the color of our skin and that we should have an equality of opportunity. It was also to do with the cadence and rhythm with which he spoke, the musicality that he set up. because. The effect of that was to say that once the listener begins to accept and be drawn into the cadence, each word that comes next is the proper and in fact only word that could come next. It completes the rhythm. It continues the sequence. You begin to accept words because of how they're operating within a rhythmic structure. And so you accept words and then you've accepted the sentence, you've accepted the speech, and you can, in a sense, disarm some of the reluctance that some people might have to the meaning in the speech by acceptance of the words of the speech. And once you accept the words as they are spoken, you sort of say, well, I accepted that word. Maybe I need to accept that meaning. It opens up the possibility for people who might not be persuaded to become persuaded. And so in this novel, in a sense, in the same sort of a way, I try to set up these rhythms and cadence and language so that certain very uncomfortable domains can be entered into. The reader accepts the words that come as the words that sort of fit the rhythm and cadence of what's going on and disarms temporarily their reaction or rejection of some of the ideas that might be in the book. And only later allows themselves to think critically about what they've just read in that sentence or that clause or that paragraph, at which point it has already found its way inside to at least some degree. And so that's really why I wrote the sentences of this book in, in the way that I did. So, talking about writing, Tell us how you write. Where do you write? What's your routine? Do you follow a routine? And how much you write? So 
I write usually in my study. And I used to write when I was much younger, before I had kids, before I was married, at night. I would sometimes write, go out with my friends, come back and write all night and then sleep the next day if it was the summer holidays or if I was, you know, when I was a student. And then when I had a job, it was after work or on weekends, I would take months off unpaid and, and write during that, those times. And now that I'm a father with children, I write when they're at school. So I write in the mornings, uh, you know, until lunchtime. And my writing day consists of often going for a walk, ideally shortly after I've woken up, when sort of my dreams are still fresh in my head, and then sitting down and sitting at my computer and just trying to make things happen. Much of my writing, I'd say I spend more time pacing around in my study with printouts of what I've written, reading my stuff out loud over and over again, than I do actually typing my stuff into the computer. But I think that we read very much with our ears. We sort of imagine that we read with our eyes, but it's a kind of oral circuitry that's involved in language. And so to access that oral circuitry, I, I spend a lot more time reading my stuff out loud over and over and over again than I do actually typing it and looking at it sort of on the page. The other thing I would say is that when young writers will ask me for you know, their advice about writing, and I'll tell them that I think that writing is much more like digging a well than like climbing a mountain. It's not that you, know, you think, okay, well, there's this peak and I will just get there through some sort of insight. Instead, it's um, a well is you make a void, you dig a hole in the ground. And miraculously, when there's a hole in the ground, if it's deep enough, water sort of seeps into it and that becomes a well. And that hole in a human life, of course, is a hole in time. It's a period of time in which nothing else is happening. It's some hours of the day, every day, where you don't do anything else. And if you do that, if you sit there and try to write for a few hours a day, eventually the water comes into your well. Eventually ideas come in and eventually the sort of the womb of the novel forms itself. And inside that, over the course of years, a book appears. So I think my writing process is just trying to make that time every day of some hours where I don't do anything else. And many days, nothing much will happen. I'll leave the day with less words than I began. I will have read over stuff and sort of deleted it and thrown it away. So in a sense, it seems that I've gone backward. But I know that if I keep that void of a few hours every day for a few years, somehow a book will appear over the course of those years. And that's really how I approach my writing. That is so beautifully said. What are you writing now? I try never to talk about books until they're written. And I have two competing ideas that I'm sort of wrestling with right now. But uh, maybe I can tell you more about you know, why I have that approach. I find that the desire to get the book into the world, to share it with other people, is a huge part of my motivation to make the time in the day to actually write. And when I talk about books too soon, it's as though I've already put them a little bit into the world. When I say, this is my idea, or this is what I'm working on, somehow that desperate desire to share them diminishes just a little bit and it becomes harder for me to make the time. So in much the way that many people say that early in a pregnancy, you don't talk about the baby or you don't talk about the name or whatever else. Early in a novel, I try not to talk about it very much at all. And right now I'm still very, very early uh, in that process. That's very well put. Thank you so much for talking with me. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me too. Thank you very much. The production assistance for this episode was provided by the Language Learning Center at the University of Washington, Seattle, the editor, Alpna Sood, and the social media coordinator, Sana Sheikh.